0: Well, back inside Creaking Door Paranormal Radio. I was afraid we wouldn't even find our way back to this studio. You know, I took a couple wrong turns in the
1: hallways (laughs) and uh, down the corridors and I I might have stepped into the wrong restroom on the way. I heard some screams, but
0: here we are. Here we are. It is Tim and Brad back in the studios with you for uh, Creaking Door Paranormal Radio. We do appreciate all of our listeners who have been asking and patiently waiting for a new episode. We kind of went through a transition phase. Uh, If you remember back, uh, I mean, it's been a while since we've done a show but at that time we were also transitioning to a new uh platform, platform. Yes. we finally got that set up and up and running but then uh, life just got crazy as it does and uh, well things
1: are still yeah. still sort of crazy out there with the covid thing mm-hmm. and on top of that the the summer was just absolutely uh, uh, bizarre to a point yeah between work between the michigan paranormal convention which yeah. was a, a great event again this year uh kudos to everyone that joined us for that back in august and, yeah, it's just been so crazy busy, and we're we're just off the road now.
0: Yeah, exactly. We're in between uh, weekend visits for uh, speaking at conventions, and yeah. so we knew we had to make this work because our upcoming guest is one we did not want to miss out, and we'll talk more about that later, but Absolutely. I am excited. And-
1: and let's uh, let's thank the folks from Midwest Parafest this mm-hmm. last weekend. We were down in Toledo, Toledo, Ohio. Yes, had a great time with some great people, hanging out with John Tenney, Xe Smith. You bet. A uh, whole, uh, whole load of paranormal presenters, if you will. So it
0: was a lot of fun, and always fun when we get to get uh, get together with these people and and hang out at these events. Oh
1: yes, and and got to go out speak on our new book, Great Lakes Monsters and Mysteries. So that was fun. Uh, great audience. Great well run event very well run event great people so
0: location was outstanding that old building we were in
1: yes and it happened to have a brewery
0: (laughs) inside
1: the premises did I forget to mention that yeah you (laughs) might have forgot a lot after that (laughs) but it it was Uh, a great weekend and we want to thank the folks down at Erie Shore Paranormal that put
0: that event on for having us in this year you bet it was an absolute honor and pleasure to be there and uh, hopefully we can do it again soon because that was a lot of fun Mm -hmm. all right well uh, we uh, even though it's been a while since we've done a show we have forgotten how this works, we know we got to do a little segment we like to call Paranews, where Brad and I each kind of find a story or two of some interesting weird things going on out there that we find fascinating. Absolutely. And the first this one I
1: found uh, is interesting uh some pterodactyl sightings in oklahoma
0: mm, oh and, and okay. we're not we're not
1: going back far we're we're just talking in the uh, we're not talking
0: stone age we here. are
1: not okay. and this was interesting because when we and I, I mentioned our new book great lakes monsters and mysteries mm-hmm. when we were doing the research for that i actually interviewed a, a woman in southern michigan who believes she had a pterodactyl landing in her backyard. Not once, but several years in a row. Wow. So this was fun to stumble upon. It says, Stories swirl about what resides in the thickness of green country... Uh, Oklahoma. Yeah. Uh, with tales of strange sightings, abundant. Seems it's not just pterodactyls. This this is one of those areas that some might consider a portal. Okay. If you read into this enough. In a recent interview, reporters uh, read aloud an email from someone claiming to have grown up outside of Taliqua, I believe I'm saying that right, in the small community of Briggs. The person claimed to have once seen a pterodactyl after picking up a friend in the Pumpkin Hollow area, and asserted another friend once saw a similarly large winged creature in the area. It's not the only story of unusual sightings, but few were ever reported to area officials. Cherokee County Game Warden Cody Youngblood. Said if locals do have such encounters as flying dinosaurs, river or lake monsters, or even Bigfoot himself, they're keeping it to themselves. Mountain lions and bears are about the only thing that they're calling us with, saying that they've seen them in the area, he said. <laughs> Tales of unidentified creatures are widespread, though. Each year, the Oklahoma Bigfoot Symposium is held in Stillwell, Oklahoma. There's even a reported $2.1 million bounty for a Bigfoot to be captured alive and unharmed. That's Seems like it'd be worth going out into the woods for a couple it's nights at least, for it.
0: But I like the fact that they're saying unharmed. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Not... These people who say they'll, they'll sell license and, <laughs> uh, and you know, dead or alive. Eh. Yeah. But this one I like.
1: Yeah. You got to just uh, maybe chloroform them and bring them in. So.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Drop from the tree behind them. <laughs> Boy, we... <laughs> I, I think there's some amateur filming we need to do here. I think so. Th- then there's a freshwater cryptid known as the Oklahoma Octopus I've never heard of this one. I have not either. Which people believe inhabits Lake Tenkiller. Whether authentic or for laughs, it appears many of the area have uh, put their own stories in mysterious species and peculiar phenomena. The Taliqua uh, Daily Press asked readers on Facebook to share their own strange experiences. Some respondents singled out the creatures that they believe they saw, while others only hinted at seeing something spooky. Okay. So there you go. More uh, more pterodactyl sightings. Talked a little bit about this this weekend, too, in uh, the presentation that we did. That we did.
2: And
0: as a matter of fact, one of the uh, other things we talked about, too, which is another part of your book, uh, of the new book, Brad, is um, sea monsters. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. And, of course, Loch Ness is the big one. Um, Champ is a big one. Uh, and here in the Great Lakes, we have our own that are said uh, each Great Lake is said to inhabit its own. Pressy and Bessie mm-hmm.
1: and Gassy and Ditha. And yeah. 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 Every lake's got something that
0: people cite and can't quite explain away. Well, now it seems China can be added to that map. The Yangtze River, the longest river in Asia, about 3,900 miles in length, is the third longest in the world. And last weekend, footage appeared on China's popular Sina Waibu microblog of what appeared to be a long black creature maneuvering through the waters, and it has dominated online discussion ever since. Footage has quickly racked up millions of views, and theories are all over the place of what exactly this could be, and of course, you've got the... the, uh, those who are saying, yep, this is something unexplained. You got those who are saying, no, it's just a big snake, whatever. But now China can throw its hat into the ring as a possible home of some type of lake monster.
1: Well, and you look back, and it was one of the, the fun things researching the new book. Mm-hmm. I found newspaper reports, written reports from every decade of the 1800s in right through the 1900s, of sea monsters being sighted in the Great Lakes region, and it's you look at Loch Ness.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's approximately I want to say somewhere in the realm of twenty-two square miles. If you put that onto the Great Lakes region, you're talking over four thousand Loch Nesses would fit surface that's area. That's fascinating. Here. So yeah. there's so much underwater terrain that has never been explored. Mm-hmm. So you you would think in China you, you've got the same issue. Yep. So could something be there? Well, it sounds like it may have been caught on film. They seem to think so. Uh, This next story is a little bit on the disturbing side. A a doctor who injected his partner with drugs during exorcism ceremonies and left her close to death has been sentenced to over 14 years in jail. Hassam Metwali, age 61, made dozens of recordings of himself injecting fluids through a cannula cannula? to uh, Kelly Wilson, while chanting as part of a dangerous perversion of the Islamic Rukhya ritual of exorcism. The father of four worked as an anesthesiast at the Diana Princess of Wales Hospital in Grimsby and ran his own pain clinic from home. He's also to reportedly to have filmed two other female patients without their knowledge. Metwally was sentenced to 14 and a half years for endangering Miss Wilson's life, by administering anesthetic drugs, supply of various controlled drugs or medicines, possession of a controlled drug with intent to supply, fraud, and voyeurism. Oh, my. Miss Milson was found at Metwally's home on the 4th of July, 2019, in a deep coma on the brink of cardiac arrest and with a fluid line inserted in her chest after engaging in an exorcism ritual the previous evening. Sentencing him at the Sheffield Crown Court, Judge Jeremy Richardson said, You are a disgrace to your profession. You will not be a doctor for very much longer, and I trust you will never, ever be a
0: doctor again. Yeah, I would think so. <laughs> so,
1: there, yeah, kind of... Uh, Disturbing on several levels. Yeah, it
0: is. You you hate to hear these stories. Every now and then, these uh, type of creeps within the field pop up. And uh, the the good news is he's been busted. He he has, and he's going to be... He's
1: 61 now, so... Uh, 75 before he gets out of prison. 75, 76. If so. he even does. If he does. Yeah. If he makes it.
0: All right. Well, I'm going to finish up news here. Uh, this one is absolutely fascinating and creepy at the same time. We're going to go to the grave with this one. And uh, this has just recently become uh, very popular online. Of course, that whole TikTok thing. Oh, the tiki talkie. I'm right. still just figuring out the, the tweets. And now they got TikTok thrown at me. But uh, this is absolutely fascinating. California man was given the fright of his life after allegedly stumbling upon a century-old grave with human hair sticking out of it. He created the video and shared it through TikTok, and it currently is boasting over uh, 1.5 million views wow. and 290,000 likes. Now, when I first saw it, he said, I was shocked. I wasn't exactly sure what I was seeing was real. Said Joel Morrison, as he told the press, really blanking gross. Gross. Uh, But upon closer inspection, I realized that it was definitely human hair coming out of the grave, the stunned 37 year old handyman told the press. Now, when you look at the photo, it actually is quite disturbing. This is old tufts of hair. Now, at first, people are thinking, because uh, this is over a hundred-year-old, a uh, hundred-year-old tombstone, and this tuft of thick locks is is coming out from a crack, and it looks like you know some people are saying it was put in there, but come to find out, uh, the professionals are weighing in. They say this can happen. For one, they say the tomb is buried near a tree, and they and and they they've found. Root system, or root, root system pushes. Okay, can push them up. That makes sense. Also, um, a lot of water log can manipulate the ground and push a coffin up and also as critters get in there once there's mm. holes in there and critters get in there and they start to go in and mess with the stuff and then pulling stuff out, back
1: out sure. so
0: they say the the, uh, the the doctors and all those checking it out say this is legit this is a tuft of hair come out here I'll show you a picture I know I'll may, we'll show this on our Facebook page oh, that's, but that's nasty it that is nasty
2: isn't it <laughs> that's yeah. nasty
0: so yeah so it's a real thing and uh, they found this tuft of hair coming out of a grave and of course you know the the whole idea of uh, maybe it's a vampire coming oh. out of the grave at nighttime, who knows, but interesting, fascinating story. Speaking
1: sure. of vampires, mm-hmm. brings us up to <laughs> our first guest back Yes, for the new season.
0: Very, very excited to be welcoming in someone who is, let's just say, in a way related to Dracula. Absolutely. We'll leave it at that. So, stick around. Our next and first guest in quite a while, Inside the Creaking Door, is coming up next right here. It's Creaking Door Paranormal Radio, powered by Eagle Play. Our world is filled with hidden mysteries and wonders for those who open themselves up to possibilities that science has not yet explained. Tim Ellis and Brad Blair, two of the authors who brought you Supernatural Haunts, Upper Peninsula Paranormal Research Society case files, and hosts of Creaking Door Paranormal Radio, continue their exploration of the bizarre and otherworldly in their latest book, Great Lakes Monsters and Mysteries. Join Brad and Tim as they recount some of the myriad legends of the lore of the United States Great Lakes region, along with Monsters of the Deep, you'll read of UFOs and alien encounters. Shapeshifters, cryptids, both winged and terrestrial. Imps, fairies, gnomes, black-eyed kids, haunted lighthouses, and phantom schooners. Tim and Brad also share some of the ghost stories and mysterious happenings shared from their listeners of Creaking Door Paranormal Radio. Get your copy of Great Lakes Monsters and Mysteries today at www.upernaturalhaunts.com. And welcome back inside Creaking Door Paranormal Radio, powered by Eagle Play, as uh, we're still kind of brushing the rust off here, Brad. It's been probably... Three months since we've been back into the studios here for uh, Creaking Door, it feels great to be back in, but uh, sometimes you, you lose the touch a little.
1: Well, you know, you keep the touch going. We, <laughs> we, had, we had
0: such a crazy summer
1: with everything going on in the world and then with our, our Michigan Paranormal Convention coming
0: back online. And then year, our then. own speaking engagements outside of that has it, just been insane. It
1: has, but it's great to get back in and get another season of Creaking Door Paranormal Radio out there.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and we couldn't be more excited to have this next guest. He is a first-time visitor inside the Creaking Door, and uh, to have him as kind of our return show after a few months out of the studio, very excited about this gentleman, Brad. Uh, We we found him in our research a couple years ago as to who we wanted to bring in for Michigan Paracon, and he was supposed to be with us this year, but uh, just due to flight restrictions and all the travel restrictions with COVID still going on, unfortunately, we couldn't have him with us, but we're excited to say... that he'll be with us next year. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: I know you and I both growing up, we grew up heavy into the universal monster movies. Oh, it was huge. And, and which really opened the door to literature in a big way for us as kids as far as getting into the old gothic stories. And I, I can't think of a better horror story or, you know, my favorite at least Dracula. You bet.
0: It is it is that iconic and so is the book that the movie that we're talking about was based off of and of course the author of Sid Book is Bram Stoker and that's why we're very excited to be welcoming inside the creaking door the great grandnephew of Bram Stoker please welcome in Dacre Stoker inside the creaking door. Dacre thank you for being with us.
3: Well Tim and Brad thank you for having me here. It's a, it's a great honor I'm, I, as I You know, pondered, geez, I just couldn't get up there this year to the uh, Michigan Paracon, but, boy, being here with you guys on Creaking Door is the next best thing, and (laughs) I'll be there next year.
0: Yes, you will. We've already got you uh, lined up and ready to go. And actually, uh, you know, we always say nothing happens uh, just happenstance. Everything seems to happen for a reason, that overused word synchronicity, right? (laughs) It gets used (laughs) everywhere now, but it's the truth. Things kind of line up the way they are, and we were just talking before we uh, went on the air here with you, Dacre, uh, how it's going to line up now with you being with us at Paracon next year and the anniversary that lies within uh, all that is Dracula.
3: Absolutely. You know, it's it's incredible when you really think of next year is the 125th anniversary of Bram Stoker publishing Dracula. Wow. And it certainly kept me in my toes the last 12 or 13 years <laughs> of doing research um, but there are folks around the world who are just, you know, bowled over by this book. Uh, guys like you, who the who the movie adaptations, the streaming adaptations, the comic books, the figures, you know, this this book that Bram wrote 124 years ago now has really changed the world uh, in, in some interesting ways. Not just obviously. English gothic literature but you know it's it's woven its way into the fabric of popular culture in many many ways and that and that's really you know why I'm involved is trying to let people realize that this creature that Bram started is kind of overshadowed the creator Bram Stoker my great granduncle and I don't I want people to know more about him uh, cuz he's worthy of it he's a very interesting guy
1: Has the book ever in the last 124 years been out of publication? It seems there's so many versions of it out there.
3: Well, you know, the the, the answer is no. It's never been out of print. It's been um, translated in over 30 languages. Um, It is a Dracula character has been adapted into over 600 movies. So. You, you know, once a book goes into public domain like, like Dracula did in 62, it's it's kind of easy not to go out of print because no publisher has to pay the Stoker right. estate any money to to publish it. So that's that's one thing. The other thing is it's just – it's always out there. It's being taught in high schools and colleges. It's almost a must read if you're a horror fan mm-hmm. uh, as Frankenstein is. Um, it gives a glimpse into the era that it was written. It was written in 1897. Uh, scholars knock themselves over to try to figure out, you know, what was Bram Stoker really talking about? What were his inspirations, his motivations? So at so many levels, guys, mm-hmm. this, this book connects and, and it connects in a way that it's still, you know, vibrant. and 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 horrifying people to this day
0: yeah Yeah. and i think that's what's so powerful of it you kind of about that book dacre you kind of just touched on it is that this is a book that transcends a a horror story it it has become part of the lexicon of universities and high schools and becoming uh, must read for classrooms too
3: yeah i've met so many people when i go to conferences and, and i go to conferences like your all's and 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 huge ones like comic con and and dragon con i got academic conferences as well i I just i want to absorb it all but i also feel it's important that i am there kind of holding the stoker banner to to let people know a little bit more about what i know about bram but it amazes me How many people have figured out different angles to analyze the book? And these are mostly university students that are writing their master's or their doctoral dissertation. They're, you know, they're looking at all these different levels. And I say, you know, guys, at the end of the day, it's really hard to tell exactly what Bram was was talking about Mm -hmm. because he didn't leave an autobiography. He did leave one hundred and twenty five pages of notes. He did which are in the Rosenbach Museum in Philadelphia. He did leave a typescript that the Paul Allen Estate purchased, and it is out in Seattle at, uh, at Paul Allen's estate, and he allows serious scholars to look at it. But there's nothing definitive that says, you know, Bram Stoker says, this is why he wrote the story." So so much is, is up to interpretation." And that's, I think why it stays so relevant is we're still looking. You know, we're still looking for that answer that somebody may find in a yard sale, you know, stuck behind <laughs> you know, some kind of naive painting. Yep. It was like, Yep here's the answer guys and now we both go home because we know the answer and dacre stoker's go no 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 there's
1: still
0: more trust me <laughs> yeah really let's not close a chapter yet <laughs>
1: Let, let's step back in your life dacre growing up was was dracula was was bram stoker's legacy a part of everyday conversation in your family or how exactly did you get involved in into the bram stoker estate <laughs>
3: It's a good question. So, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll lay, the, lay out the groundwork. Bram was one of seven children, okay? Of those seven, only three had offspring. Of course, Bram had a son. That son had a daughter. And, and that daughter actually was married twice. Both husbands died in World War II. And there are still, or there were three great-grandsons. There are still two alive. And then Bram's youngest brother, George, um, got married to Agnes, had two kids, the son, Thornley Stoker, came to Canada uh, after World War I, and that's how my branch of the family started, and there was three boys from that family of that. None are still living, but there are people of my generation, six of us. And then the, the final son, Tom, that had a child, um, he had a daughter married a, a fellow named Farson, and, and Daniel Farson was the offspring. He's a generation... Um, older than I am. And he actually wrote one of the biographies of Bram. So I was aware growing up in Montreal, Canada, you know, purely just around Halloween time when people would talk about Dracula, they'd talk about, oh, the Stoker family, blah, blah, blah. You know, <laughs> what's, what's going on? Will to come to your house? and you are going to give us candy or take our blood? <laughs> you know, that kind of becomes, you know, a, a kind of a broken record around Halloween. But I didn't really get into it until you know, the late 70s when I went off to college and started to you know, actually study and, and I was a physical education and education major but I you know, took English courses and, and, and decided to focus a little bit on who Bram was but funnily enough back in the day there wasn't much written about Bram Stoker. There was a heck of a lot about Dracula and it wasn't until these two Boston College professors, McNally and Florescu, actually mm-hmm. wrote a book called In Search of Dracula, and they devoted a portion of that to what they discovered in the Rosenbach Museum, the Dracula Notes, and they, they were the first ones to draw the parallel, based on Bram's notes, between Vlad the Impaler and Count Dracula, and then they kind of rounded it out, saying, well, here was Bram, this Irish guy, he was a civil servant, he was a theater manager that's where the Stoker family got info. We had a copy of that book and, and I read that as well as Dracula while in college. And, you know, you can say the rest is history. Um, but I really was and still am the only one kind of flying the banner um, to this day and have gotten into, you know, writing prequels and sequels and so on. And and I've decided it's important that somebody of my generation within the family learns as much as I can because if if somebody of my generation doesn't, it's going to be hard to catch up and, and, and figure out you know what we're missing. because uh, you can't trust biographers all the time. They do a pretty good job, but nothing's better than somebody within the family. Really studying and digging deep into the the mysteries and the secrets. Absolutely,
0: yeah, for sure. And uh, and so you're absolutely right. It is you know it's you're taking the uh, the the flame now, if you will, and you're keeping it going for for generations to come. Now, but for you, Dacre, to once you really started to want to find out who your um, your family member was, who Bram was, and then wanted to kind of allow the family. Uh, legacy, if you will, at that point to live on and start the writing. Did you, after researching him, try to follow in his footsteps and and walk the walks that he did and find out what his motivation was for Dracula before you started to delve in and start writing as well?
3: Yeah, you know, that that's a good question. I, I don't think I did it consciously, but I think I think I did it subconsciously. What what I did was realize the more I understood him. You know, this weird childhood illness is his turning into a, an athlete and then a, actually very, you know, a, a champion athlete at Trinity College. And then I find his lost journal, a journal of his that he had mentioned in a book he wrote. But nobody knew where the journal was. And I was digging around in the attic in the Isle of Wight of my cousins and I found this box and had this almost illegible, you know, 177 pages of stuff. That's when, upon analyzing that and publishing it with Dr. Elizabeth Miller of Toronto, that's when I really figured out who this guy was because I was reading this journal and picking up on things that Bram observed, that he felt, that he recognized, things that he wanted to keep for speeches, for stories, for articles, and it was while he was a university student, while he had his first job, and it wasn't too far off the chronological age of myself that he was writing it, so it was kind of like in real time. And as I had been a, a, an athlete myself actually all the way up to the you know, national, international level and I'd actually coached at the Olympic level, I started to figure out what makes Bram Stoker tick, much like I did to my own athletes, and what he was, what he was trying to attain. And and obviously, you know, he's trying to become a writer, but also make a living as a theater manager. But he's trying to put people on the edge and the edge of reality. And it's an area that I know you guys delve into with the paranormal. He was really into spiritualism and, and, and wrestling with these concepts of what happens after life. Now, remember, this is 1897 when Conan Doyle who's a good friend of his was interested in spiritualism and, and so was Mark Twain a neighbor of Bram so the intelligentsia of the time these guys that were taking risks as Bram was delving into the occult and wanting to know more even though it was sometimes socially unacceptable mm-hmm. to question things they, they, it wasn't cool to be a paranormal investigator back in the day because the church had such a kind of stranglehold on things right yet bram did it in a way that was kind of clandestine he wrote this novel and introduced these ideas of the devil of the supernatural and he did it in a way that he could say well it's fiction but he Mm. veiled it with things in the novel that made it sound real and very real remember the book was written Well, the Jack the Ripper murders were going on, and many people suspected that that was supernatural because nobody, even the police, couldn't catch the guy at the time. So there was a lot of uncertainty, a lot of stress at the time, and Brand capitalized on that with this. Supernatural thriller, and people weren't quite ready for it at the time, but they certainly <laughs> they certainly have accepted it since then.
0: Yeah, for sure, and very interesting on in how you lay it out on the timeline like that. I think that's going to really kind of paint the picture for some of our viewers who may not have fully understood the timeline that this this novel was being written and what was going on in the world around it. So, thank you for doing that because I think that's really going to paint a very clear picture for a, a lot of our listeners on that. I think that's that's as important as the writer himself. Sometimes times.
3: Yeah, you got to put those things in perspective. You know, mm-hmm. you say, well, you know, when did Lovecraft write? What was going on at the time? When did mm-hmm. Poe write? When did Mary Shelley? You know, Mary right. Shelley writes Frankenstein when, you know, medicine was, you know, you know, nowhere near the way she sort of predicted it would be. Mm-hmm. Bram Stoker writes Dracula when international travel is just picking up the, the country of Romania wasn't even what it was, but Transylvania was recognized, but it was you know it was a land beyond the forest mm-hmm. and and that was one of the books that he found you know this was this you know strange place out in the middle of nowhere but it was also a time when people in the british empire were scared to death of what they call reverse colonization people coming back to england going you know you've you've been out and conquered the world now we're going to come back to your island and hang here. <laughs> people were scared of that sure um and and you know there was plagues and and cholera epidemics and things going on the contagious diseases when people didn't understand germ theory mm-hmm. so they ratcheted up these unexplained deaths much to the chagrin of organized religion as to maybe this was supernatural occurrences yeah. maybe the spirits of the dead are coming out of the ground and taking the life from the others how can you explain that to the local priest and he can't and so people's minds who are trying to rationalize the unknown And so the best way to do it is when somebody comes up with, you know, some good folklore or a superstition to say, well, it's, you know, these are spirits that are not at rest. And they're coming out, taking the life from the living. We've got to do all these rituals. Bram found 26 books, guys, that confirmed all this sort of stuff Hmm. in the London library. So this was mainstream authors, people that have been to Transylvania, that have written guidebooks and tour books and have delved into the superstitions and kind of made it seem real, gave it this justification that it existed. Bram simply took all that cool stuff and wove it into a really a heck of a cool story.
1: Yeah. And in your story, in your international bestseller, Dracula. You incorporate parts of Bram's real life and, and incorporate. I, I love the way you did that. I really enjoyed the book. And you, you work it in so that it, it feels autobiographical as if it was something that Bram wrote. Uh, it, what, what really inspired you to, to mesh the two?
3: Well, it, it's just as you said, it, it's kind of let people, you know, be, be the question I, want, I wanted people to question, first of all, is this a real story or not? Is this Bram Stoker fictionally or factually or a little bit of both? But what really kind of put me over the edge was when I analyzed his life and he had this mysterious illness that nobody really knows what caused him to be so sick for seven years, isolated in his room, you know, only picked up and brought outside, didn't know it was a stand you know, upright, but then he made some miraculous recovery at the age of seven plus to become a champion athlete. Now, people just don't in those days, they just don't recover with fancy medicine like steroids and human growth hormone and all this other stuff that help people who are so debilitated to you know, bounce back. But just not bounce back, but to grow to be six foot two in this big champion stud on campus. So I, I just, you know, what writers do a lot is like, what if? What if there was some sort of supernatural intervention that Bram recognized beyond his dreams, you know, the nightmares that you don't wake up from, and he really did have some help along the way, and therefore now, near the end of his life, he needs to tell his story. And the story of Dracula just resonated to me like, my God, maybe this is true, and what if it was? There's got to be a backstory to this. So that's what Dracul is, and when J.D. Barker and I got together to to create it, you know, I said, "Well, the, the first thing we've got to have is is the truth." And so I presented certain documents in his life, and J.D. said, "It's got to be the nanny." <laughs> and I go, "What do you mean?" And, and they really did have Ellen Crone as as a nanny. She came to them as an orphan and stayed. He said, "That that's always." It, you know the, the unknown The family members are kind of known entities mm-hmm. But the nanny you don't know what she brings with her You know what baggage comes with her the outsider. And you know without, without spoiling it that's, that's, you know, that's our link to the supernatural
0: mm-hmm. Now you Dacre, you, you as Brad had mentioned Have the international bestseller uh, As did Bram Bram had a, a bestseller as well But I, I think the kind of uh, the, the interesting part about that is For his time Alive it, that wasn't Dracula
3: <laughs> that's a shocker isn't it yeah. um, but again let's put it back in perspective the question you guys asked earlier his job was managing the Lyceum Theatre for the most famous Shakespearean actor of the time Henry Irving who was actually knighted the first actor ever knighted for his contributions to the stage 27 years Bram did everything within his power to help Irving succeed to help the theatre succeed and it did but when he died, I mean, it's kind of like if we you know in our age, if we rolled up Brad Pitt and George Clooney into one body <laughs> and you've got one manager for him and he dies, Bram wrote a two volume you know ex not not you know classless expose, but it was basically my personal reminiscence of Henry Irving where bram. Only mentions himself a few times, but he does. But he mentions a lot of the things he and Irving did together, their travels, their meeting of Buffalo Bill, their friendship with Buffalo Bill, who, of course, Bram Stoker helped him come over to Scotland and England to perform his Wild West show. But he was also the guy that Bram Stoker modeled Quincy Morris after. (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh, dracula. yeah so, sure there's
3: always a connection anything yep. i went there's always a little dracula connection and all these things that, <laughs> that bram did
0: outstanding i also found it really interesting too i mean you know you had kind of touched on this already uh the idea of people mysteriously dying was it a disease was there a plague going on uh bram's eldest brother uh who was a doctor was a medical consultant for the writing of dracula if, if i'm understanding that correctly is that right Absolutely.
3: Uh, he was another doctor knighted for his contributions to medical science. Sir, sir uh, William Thornley Stoker, his eldest brother, in the Dracula notes and also in the Dracula typescript, it's very obvious that that there is Thornley Stoker's handwriting, and he actually explains to Thornley how to do the blood transfusions. Okay. Uh, he also explains this very complex. Surgery that was performed in Chapter Twenty-One, when Van Helsing and Seward actually had to perform brain trephination on Renfield. If you remember, he was knocked around by Dracula mm-hmm. and had, you know, brain swelling. And at the time, brain trephination surgery was just in its infancy. And I found that Thornley Stoker performed it three times in medical journals. Twice it was successful, and once it wasn't. Wow! But that that scene in Dracula. Again, it doesn't, doesn't play out in many of the movies. He's, Renfield is conscious while they take a hole out of his head to let you know some of the blood pressure come out. It's, it's gruesome, yeah. but it's, it's real. That's what's so cool. So Thornley was very helpful, told him what kind of medical instruments to use. And remember, blood transfusions were, were in their infancy. They didn't even have blood typing at the time. So Thornley helped the brother get it right, and this was... This is the way Bram liked to operate. He wanted things done properly. And the funny thing is, to this day, on British television, they require medical procedures to be accurately done. They oh, don't wow. want people to fudge it.
2: Hmm.
3: It's a funny thing, and not many people knew this, that TV and movies in England, you've got to do everything, you know, by the book. So it's not just like a, a fudge factor so people go, oh, yeah, we can, we can fix this. No problem with a Swiss <laughs> Army knife and a pack of and a little bit of duct tape. <laughs>
2: no. no.
3: <laughs> so Bram was a, f- you know, foreshadowing how things had to be done right to create the illusion that the story was real.
0: Well, so ahead of his time. I mean, think about it. Go back to his time of writing that book, he could have written any type of medical procedure, and ninety percent of those who read it back then would would have not have questioned it in any way it 's almost like he foresaw this book uh, going generations beyond him and and he could have been questioned about it so i just I find it so fascinating that even back then, he had a medical consultant in that book yeah
3: and, and it was also thornley was also an expert in. Um, The whole concept of, um, you know, mental diseases, psychological Mm -hmm. diseases. And and I've seen records of Bram Stoker actually going to the prisons and the asylums of the day to interview people who were put in prison because they were, you know, mental patients or actually in asylums. So that's how we got a really good understanding of our man, Renfield.
1: He did all of this in-depth research to put this book together, this classic, that has lived on, as we said, going on 125 years. My understanding, though, is he never actually stepped foot in Romania to research the geography, the castles, the things that he wrote on. Those were all out out of literature, correct?
3: yeah, and he didn't need to. I mean, it would have been great. Yeah, it would have been nice if he could have gone there. He traveled to America eight times all over Europe with the Lyceum theater. But the resources guys that he had in the London Library, and now that I've actually been there and I've seen all those books, analyzed them to the nth degree. There is travel logs by by the the German Baedeker. Train schedules were accurate, physical descriptions of uh, of the area. And probably one of the coolest things that has is, is just happened is uh, a friend of mine, a Dutch-German guy, found in the Dracula notes just a couple of years ago penciled scratches of the lines of longitude and latitude where Bram Stoker decided to set his fictional Castle Dracula. And that was based mm. on one of the three maps that were in the books in the London Library. And the fact that those maps... And the and the books referenced in the Carpathian Mountains these volcanic mountains. And it, back in the day, the Victorians had these weird kind of superstitious ideas that the devil's playground was in these volcanoes. Those were portals to hell. Hmm. So the concept Bram was looking for was a devil incarnate in his Vlad the you know, hmm. Vlad Dracula. He used Vlad the Impaler as a model, but he needed the devil as his sort of absolute creature to then merge with a, a real person. And the place where he put the castle was an extinct volcano. And the notes show it exactly as you wow. can see the, these coordinates. And, and I actually was there just before this pandemic erupted and, and was able to, with the uh, permission and cooperation of the Colomani National Park, put a plaque up on the side of a a rock face at the side of this mountain with tons of press, this is the location of Bram Stoker's fictional Castle Dracula. Yet another mark on the Dracula Trail in Transylvania. That's great. I
1: I had the opportunity to tour Romania a number of years back now, and it it struck me as very interesting. It was my first time that far into Europe to see how the further you got outside of the bigger cities, uh, which there aren't too many of, How superstitious that the the population still is over there and and to see the evil eye built into the sides of houses and and crucifixes actually implanted into the home structure. It's yet on the other side of it, they were just really starting to get their feel, it seemed, on tourism and some of the villages had these really kitschy dracula statues and different vampire <laughs> t-shirts things along that lines it it seems like they're just now really accepting and incorporating that in as a draw to the nation yet it has to be one of their biggest tourist attractions as far as something that would draw people i i know i never would have had a lot of interest in Transylvania, in Romania, had it not been for reading Dracula on multiple occasions and, and just the the extent that he's been infused into pop culture.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, some of them are embarrassed by it. Some of them are infuriated by it, but many of them profit by it and think mm-hmm. it's pretty cool. You know, they would love to be known for for other things, but the world just won't let it happen because the, the whole Dracula <laughs> Vibe is just too strong, and and the the interest. I'm I'm not sure if you did you get to actually see Bran Castle in near Brasov?
1: Yes, yes, it's quite the tourist destination as it turned out. We were fighting mobs of schoolchildren.
3: <laughs> yeah, so I mean, you get the idea that it's like, yeah, it's over, not overrun. They get now three quarters of a million people to see a castle that's that they call Dracula's Castle, even though Vlad the Impaler. There's no record that he actually stayed there. There's right. records that he would have actually used that as a, a as a place to a stronghold because it was right on the border of Wallachia and Transylvania. But I will say this, just for the record for your listeners, all these books that I mentioned in the London Library, there was two sketches of Bran Castle in those books. Wow. And when I'm convinced when Bram Stoker sat down, to describe the exterior of his fictional castle dracula that he placed 400 miles to the north in the calamani national park on top of an extinct volcano that he was looking at one of those two sketches because they are the only sketches of maps of excuse me castles in the area and it's very obvious to me when he describes sitting high on this rock precipice you know that this 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 castle that that's what he's describing and furthermore it's it's Bram's style to kind of take this you know sort of uh, collection of things almost like a you know a merger of different characteristics of people he did the same with his castle the interior of his castle Dracula was based on the interior of a castle in Cruden Bay, Scotland where he spent 11 of his summers, and he wrote Dracula there over two of them. And he visited the castle, the inside. And it has an octagonal room exactly the way it's described with the different doors going in, no windows to the outside, lit by a single lamp in chapter two. It's exactly that, that interior. So he took two castles, put them together, shoved them up on the top of a, a mountain 400 miles away, and bingo, bingo we have another mystery of like well there's no castle there but you know what what went into it now now we know
0: yeah fascinating now daker uh in your research of bram you know is the creation of Dracula and the fact that he, he, he took all these uh, almost puzzle pieces and created this fictional uh, castle, like you've been explaining to us, but have you found him to be someone who was just an amazing writer and had this amazing imagination? Or was he into the paranormal or spiritualism or, or kind of that kind of thing? Did you find anything that in, in his history?
3: Uh, you know, I'd say it's a merger of both. I, I actually use the term from this writer, Sebastian Junger, the perfect storm. I don't know if you remember that book and made it into a good movie with it, George Clooney. Yes. But that's to me, that's Bram's life. There are certain things in his own life, the mysterious childhood illness, some stories his mother told him about people being misdiagnosed and buried prematurely and a neighbor getting buried prematurely and having to drag herself out of the grave. But then the research that he went through in the London Library, all coupled with his own personal interest of the occult, of the paranormal, of spiritualism, seance. You know, this was a big thing of the day. And his colleagues, you know, Bram was a Freemason. Doesn't mean, you know, he's he's off somewhere doing weird stuff. (laughs) But, you know, there was an offshoot of the Order of the Golden Dawn. You know, he never went to the Hellfire Club that I know of. But he was interested in that. And, and, as, and as I said earlier in the show, he was good friends with Arthur Conan Doyle, mm-hmm. um, who was a very noted spiritualist. Conan Doyle gave a, a lengthy interview to Bram uh, on his, on his, uh, prior to his wedding. Bram and Florence were invited to their wedding. He wrote Bram a very nice letter congratulating him on his writing of Dracula. Wow. Um, and also recently... 27 letters have been discovered in a library in England I'm not allowed to disclose too much about it because I didn't make the discovery. I've read each one of them, mm. but I to—I don't want to take the thunder from the, the American stu- uh, PhD student who found them. And what she found was that Bram had a profound interest in the occult before he started writing Dracula. Wow. While he was writing Dracula and even after writing Dracula. So his interest spanned about an 11-year period, at least the letters that we found. I can't say that for his interest, but he wrote Dracula over seven years. But he was obviously thinking about, you know, what happens to the body Hmm. after our mortal remains are gone. Um, I know he was very well Uh, Acquainted with the writings of Walt Whitman, they became good friends. Um, Obviously, long-distance pen pals, and I know that some of the time spent in Cruden Bay, Scotland, he actually sort of connected with the whole idea of, you know, the Mother Earth being so connected to um, this, this, the sky, the sea, the underworld. Cruden Bay, Scotland, has some very interesting rocks. Hmm. about 100 yards offshore at low tide that looked very much to me and when I've been over there doing my research and talking with a writer named Mike Shepard who's written about that in in his book When Brave Men Shudder that it it just looks like these granite outcroppings are are again like these volcanoes portals to to hell (laughs) and there have been so many ships wreck on there there are so many souls that are at rest, but not at rest you know sort of in, in tormented souls that are laying off these rocks I'm, I'm, I'm just because Bram wrote two other books while he was there and mentioned this stuff I'm sure Bram was very interested in what happens to the soul and are they at rest are they not at rest are they searching for some sort of eternal peace and, and, and what goes on as, again after we after we shut down
1: well, and I know before we went on air here, Tim had mentioned the two books that are in every household seem to be Dracula mm-hmm. and the Holy Bible. And, and, <laughs> and, and that, that's it's such a true statement, I think, to, to a point. Those, those are always in publication. You're just about anybody that you go into, at least growing up our age, has some type of a copy of Dracula. You, you said there was a, uh, so, some type of connection to, uh, to, to Bram's funeral.
3: There's a pretty cool story, and this is a cool thing to, to sort of try to wrap up this little connection here, which is neat. And, and, you know, I've had some pushback occasionally from very religious people. Oh, I won't read that Dracula. It's nothing, it's nothing but devil worship. No, it's a horrible book. Oh, you, it's, the messages in there are terrible. And so at times I've, I've been, you know, delicate about whom am I seeking to and what, what do I say. But I will tell you this. Bram Stoker's personal Bible that, that I found in, in, in the Isle of Wight has two um, chapters, two, two uh, entries that are, that are underlined. And one of them is resist the power of the devil. Mm-hmm. Okay? And, and I, I keep that in my mind. And, and, and uh, in 2012 was the 100th anniversary of Bram's death. And we had a service in Dublin, Ireland. It was a big gathering of the family and lots of fans came because there's some wonderful events just sort of publicizing Bram Stoker in his town uh, of Dublin, which was, you know, U- U- UNESCO City of Literature. And, and it was, you know, trying to help promote Bram to be looked at with his fellow writers like Yates you know, and Swift and others. And we had a wonderful church service in this in this Protestant church, the one where Bram was married in. And the priest came to me. I was, I was with my son and and another guy who was a big collector of Dracula books. And he had asked us before, would you bring a copy of Dracula with you? And we were perplexed. Why did he want this copy of Dracula? Mm-hmm. And were three of us were standing and he says, I'd like to process with the copy of Dracula. And my son, who was a religious major, uh, England and religious at Swanee College, said, Dad, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> he, says, he says, oh, don't be silly. He says, I've got the Bible with us as well. They're both books about good and evil where good wins out at the end.
0: Nice. Wow. So it's that's, it's, like, it's yep.
3: nothing like a, a, a Protestant <laughs> minister, an Irishman, to sum it up in one sentence. They're both books about good and evil where good wins out at the end. I you love know? it. And so he, he literally had a, a fellow carrying the Bible. One carrying Dracula, they processed up the church. They had, you know, the cross and everything else. The organ was playing. My son was elbowing me, thinking there was going to be a bolt of lightning come down. It never came down. <laughs> and, and both of these wonderful books were placed on the altar for a wonderful service. Oh, so there, what a great story!
1: <laughs> that, that's great. Yeah, it is. So, so, so what does uh, what, what Dacre Stoker have coming up now? Do we are we looking forward to more books? Are we going to start seeing film adaptions of what you've already put out there? Uh, new events. What's happening with
3: you? Oh, boy. Yeah, this you know, the pandemic has cut down my travel, but it's given me time to write. So here we go. I've got some graphic <laughs> novels that I've teamed up with the guy Chris McCauley uh, in what we're calling the Stoker verse. We're, we're adapting some of Bram Stoker's short stories.
0: Oh,
2: nice.
3: To come out as graphic novels because we just feel they, they need some attraction and graphic is probably the way to go so we've got the virgin's embrace we've got the story that Bram's mother told him when he she, he was a young boy about her experiencing the cholera epidemic of 1832 uh, that I mentioned about the neighbor being buried prematurely that's coming out in a graphic novel within you know 6 or 8 months the, the artistry takes a while We've actually got our hands into a documentary about Bram Stoker's life, basically the things I've been outlining to you guys on your show that we think, you know, could be a good documentary on television. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm actually writing a story with a Dr. Leverett Butts, who's a, a professor at University of North Georgia. We've decided to write the story of Bram Stoker in Cruden Bay, in the shadow of this Slains Castle that I mentioned earlier. What actually went on in his life while he was writing the story, the pulling together of the books, but then fictionalizing it, obviously, much like J.D. Barker and I did with Dracula, so that some you know, really weird stuff happens, <laughs> as well as the writing. So th- those are the main projects at the moment. And, uh, and, and then, of course, with the 125th coming up, Scar Comics in England is going to actually uh, produce a Dracula comic book. Ooh. In installments, but it's going to have all the stuff in it that was edited out, in the publication phase, and also some really cool gems that never made it out of Bram's notes are going to be included, uh, in into the, in this in this big comic book. Okay. Uh, as well as some tours to take people to see some of these cool places. So uh, thank right. you for asking. And then of course be in Sault Ste. Marie next August (laughs) give you guys an update again (laughs) what
0: what else is happening no we love it Baker before we let you go I gotta ask uh, uh, because I'm just I I, I get curious with these these uh, weird questions but one how many uh, uh, copies of Dracula do you own and two what is the oldest version you have
3: uh, I don't know off the top of
2: my
3: head. I've got a bookshelf full of these things. I, I do look for good deals. I, I try, I'm trying to cre- you know, collect good first editions of them from around the world. Yeah. Uh, the oldest I have, and I don't think it gets any older than this, it's an edition that Bram Stoker gave to his mother three days before its original publication and it's inscribed by bram to my dearest mother
0: before it ever (laughs) went to
3: publication yeah it was three days before the may 26th 1897 publication date so it's obviously you know an advanced copy or you know the authors even in those days would have got a hardcover copy and he could you know give copies to certain people and so I I've, I've got one of those. That's awesome. Uh, and it yeah. and it's and I I do make it available to um to live to you know conventions to to different um, museums when they're putting on big exhibits. Of course it's pretty expensive to travel around with <laughs> normally I say, sorry, I'm not going sure, and let it go FedEx. You've got to pay for a ticket for me to carry it
2: in my backpack, <laughs> yeah. uh, which
3: I do, and then I bring it there and I present it to them, and then I come around six months later and pick it back up again.
0: Oh wow! Absolutely fascinating. This last uh, 40 minutes has just flown, uh, flown by, Daker. If you want to learn more about our guest and and more about his work, you can find him online at date uh, date. Well, it's spelled D A C R E Stoker dot com. So it's D-A-C-R-E stokercom He is the great grandnephew of Bram Stoker, Dacre Stoker. Thank you so much for joining us inside the Creaking Door. This has been absolutely fascinating.
3: My pleasure, guys. Just looking forward to meet, meeting you all in the future.
0: You bet. Very soon. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, more on the way from Creaking Door Paranormal Radio, powered by Eagle Play. Think of Michigan's Upper Peninsula as the scary attic sitting there above the rest of the state. I can think of no better guides to take you inside the history and lore than the guise of the Upper Peninsula Paranormal Research Society. Those are the words from writer and lead researcher for the hit TV show Ghost Adventures, Jeff Belanger. For over 20 years, the Upper Peninsula Paranormal Research Society has dedicated their lives to researching the paranormal. And now, some of their favorite cases are brought to life on the pages of their debut book, Supernatural Haunts. Come inside these pages with the team as they share intimately the history of each location and their experiences during their investigation. Learn their techniques and some of the most intense moments they have faced. True stories and true accounts of ghosts await you inside the pages of Supernatural Haunts by the Upper Peninsula Paranormal Research Society. Get your autographed copy today at www.youpernaturalhaunts.com. And welcome back inside Creaking Door Paranormal Radio with Tim Ellis and Brad Blair. And Brad, I got to tell you, man, uh, sometimes things just work out the way uh, in such a cool way. And the fact that we've been out of the studio for a few months and uh, come back and to have Dacre as our, our first guest back. That was so cool to chat with him. Wasn't it great? So cool.
1: And yeah, I, I've always been such a vampire fan yeah. and such a Dracula fan. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned, You, know, I, I did do a Romania trip some years right. back, and I never would have done that. And I loved it. it. It was an amazing country to see. There's a lot to do there. But yeah, I never would have if it wasn't for that Dracula connection.
0: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So,
1: a lot of fun to have him on. And again, we we so look forward to having him here in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan next August yeah. for Michigan Paracon. Yeah. Was such a bummer when he canceled out because there were two people I had never met in person I was looking forward to. Mm-hmm. Uh he was one of them. Yep. And uh, the other one was Bob, Bob Gimlin, the Gimlin, a Gimlin Patterson film and yep. he's no longer traveling. So
0: Yeah, same here. I, it was it was it was definitely a bummer, but the fact that it uh ties into 125th anniversary oh, now it's going to be great yeah it, it's outstanding so again thank you uh to, to dacre stoker for being our guest inside creaking door paranormal radio well uh even though uh, it's been a few months since we've done a show we're glad to be back in the studio right in the midst of uh, our busy time of year we are on the road like crazy right now
1: it is and we've uh we, we've been on the road we're heading out this weekend we've got michigan ufo contact in houghton lake michigan mm-hmm. uh week after that So sage paracon that's going to be another virtual one coming out of england yep uh man we've, Happy we've got a, a part of that again though a, absolutely and, we've got some library talks coming up
0: yep we have uh, man we have one coming up in November that uh, we're right. just waiting for the promoter to officially announce it but we so we haven't said anything yet on it.
1: Yeah, but I, I I believe it is out there now on the webpage. He hasn't put it on social media yet. Well, then let's announce. But it is the the Old Mill parafest. Yes. That's coming up Down in, in Dundee, Dundee, Michigan. Uh that's uh, I believe the second weekend of November. Mm-hmm. We have another potographs event coming up, potographs for pooches. That's that's in March. That's after we yeah. get over this hump, get, get past the, the holiday season and kick yeah. back in. Uh, I already have a couple exciting events that we're in the works with for next year as well. So. Yeah, it
0: looks like we could be out co- towards the uh, West Coast next year uh, with some people who we're speaking with. So we'll see. We're, we're excited. Yeah. It's a busy time of year, but we love this time of year.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Getting into the Halloween season, getting back into the studio, yep. getting another season going of Creaking Door Paranormal Radio. Yep.
0: So it doesn't get any better than this. It does not. So we are wishing everyone a very happy and safe Halloween season. We will have another show to you before Halloween of 2021 that we promise. Oh. Absolutely, you. But uh, sit back and enjoy this episode uh, for sure.
1: And you can keep up on our events where Tim and I are going to be appearing, as well as the websites where you can get tickets, get all the info on. Uh, just check in on our social media sites, mm-hmm. Creaking Door Paranormal Radio, on both Facebook, on Twitter. Uh, yeah, it, It's been so hot and heavy lately. The way the schedule's been changing, yeah. we, we update it on a regular basis. So just check in. We'll be posting on that as, as things progress.
0: Yeah. Unfortunately, that pandemic is still out there and it's uh, throwing a lot of curveballs at events. So, yeah, we got to be fluid with it and changing as we go. All right. That is going to come to a conclusion of our first episode back to Creaking Door Paranormal Radio. So happy to be back in the studios and doing this. And on behalf of my co-host, Brad Blair, my name's Tim Ellis. And thank you to our editors and our producers as we are bringing you Creaking Door Paranormal Radio powered by Eagle Play. The Creaking Door